this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to us. Just watch. Like this is going to, we're going to be, we're going to be better people because of this. What's shaking? Welcome back to All In with Rick Jordan. I am your host, Rick Jordan. We're going to go through a lot of things today around trauma and getting yourself to the point to where you can actually function in life and kill a lot of those things that are holding you back. At least that's what I'm hoping for today. So, hey, share this show with all three people, three people you know that might enjoy the content because that's the only way that we grow and reach more people and help more people. And today you'll especially want to share this because my guest is the author of The Other Side of Us, a memoir of trauma, truth, and transformation. You know, she has degrees in English and psychology and a master's degree in communication studies and studied with the Centers of Spiritual Living. I mean, it's just a wealth of knowledge here around this topic. Molly Wisegram, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. Me too. Me too. Trauma. My Lord. Yeah. Is that, you know, I've gone through some work recently in the past six months around traumas of mine. And Mm -hmm. a lot of mine stemmed from my father passing when I was 16, like really Mm -hmm. literally all of it, you know, and there's probably Mm -hmm. some micro traumas, but I'm thinking because I've noticed now that I've gone through this process that there's a lot that probably don't even know that their lives are being run by their trauma. Mm-hmm. And so how do you, what's the first step of awareness would you think mm-hmm. to that? Cause that's a, to notice that, wow, there's, there's something I need to address here. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I personally, I feel like there's something, my trauma was a little different in terms of I had a, I, I, and I will tell that story, but, at a really immediate um, in my face and had to deal with it kind of thing um, with sort of an elongated period of trauma. But I do think that trauma as the after effect can create ways to, that we act, that we're trying to avoid these, um, these moments and, and avoiding at one time or dealing in a certain way at one time worked, right? It worked for yeah. us and that's how we had to do it. But I do think there's a moment of inventory that's helpful because they may, ways our behaviors may not be serving us anymore. And so I always think an inventory is an important um, opportunity to say, okay, why am I doing that? What is it really helping me avoid? Is it helping me um, cope with something that happened a long time ago? Or is it really helping me right now? Yeah, that's that's interesting too, because it's a the behaviors that are not serving you anymore. And I believe everyone has those. You've had your own journey through this, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have. Yep. Um, I had a really, I I guess it's still, our trauma happened two years ago that that I ended up really, a very notable trauma. I ended up writing a book about it. Um, But I, I think I'm still sifting through. I mean, in reality, right, we all, I, I look at life as sort of like this opportunity to recover. Like we're constantly recovering. <laughs> and and I don't see that as a bad thing. I mean, on my website, it says, you know, life's about, there's sort of this constant illness or trauma that happens and a constant recovery. But the recovery part is an amazing opportunity, really, because it's almost, uh, I don't know if I should go so far to say this, but it's almost, it can be a reinvention of who we are. It can be kind of a, 
reassembly um, after we get broken down into something intentional. We choose it that way. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah, it is actually yeah. really cool. And, and I'm still probably in that period of, of after two years of, of a, a huge trauma in our lives, I'm still in that, like, I, I've certainly become a different person, but I'm also in that inventory period of like, okay, what's still trauma kind of related behavior? And really, what do I want to, what, where do I want to go from here? What do I want to be after this? Yeah. What, do you mind sharing what the trauma was? Yeah. <laughs> so in 2019, um, actually Valentine's Day, my husband um, was diagnosed with a, a rare autoimmune disorder mm. called Guillain-Barre syndrome. And I had never heard of Guillain-Barre syndrome before. Except for kind of, yeah. yeah, it kind of jogged my memory because I've, you know, when I've gotten blue shots in the past, there is a disclaimer, have you ever had Guillain-Barre syndrome? And at the time, I would never know how to even pronounce it. Yeah. Um, but so that, that kind of jogged a memory. But other than that, it had never crossed I, I, even my my realm of awareness. Um, but prior to, uh, the, so basically February 14th is his diagnosis date. I didn't know anything about any kind of symptoms he had been experiencing probably for a couple of days before that. But he brought forward this, like, um, he had his, he had, his symptoms were tingling hands and feet. And I kind of was like, oh, well, I guess that's weird. Um, you gonna go to the doctor? I kind of prodded him, like, I tested him, like, oh, okay, is he gonna go to the doctor? And he's like, actually, I already made an appointment. I was like, wow, okay. Wow, yeah. Um, so, you know, we have four kids at the time. Um, our youngest was eight months old, and we were still kind of just getting adjusted to life with four kids and, and jobs and whatever. So, you know, we didn't talk too much about his symptoms and, and what he was thinking about it. We just literally were kind of like making dinner, getting people bathed, doing, finishing up with work that we had. You know, it was, it wasn't like a big deal until all of a sudden, um, it's, we actually stayed in, in the hospital, um, February 13th for observation because the physician in town, um, who were lucky enough that he was, he was aware of that something, I mean, he could really sense something was off. Um, we stayed for observation. And by the next day he had, my husband had no reflexes. Um, they had consulted with neurology in, in our tertiary care center three hours wow. from our home. Cause we're in, we're in rural, we're in South Dakota. So um, where we live, um, we needed to go three hours away to be, to have that specialty care. <clears throat> so, I was like, oh, okay, well, Guillain-Barre syndrome, tell me, you know, what's that? Um, and Chris and I both heard the physician say, you know, here's the deal. Basically, your body um, probably had some simple virus or bacteria or something like that. And what happens with Guillain-Barre syndrome is the body gets confused and essentially goes after the nervous, your own body, your nervous yeah. system versus the bacteria or virus. And essentially what that does is it um it it eats at the coding of your nerves and so your your brain can't send messages to the different parts of your body uh, to then move yeah. it and there's varying degrees of severity and and yet the physician said here's the deal Guillain-Barre syndrome you know 90 to 95 percent of people get back to their life you may have some recovery ahead of you but you know kind of that calming feeling and I'm so thankful after he walked away um 
I looked at my husband and I put my hands on his shoulders and I was like, and this is a, it's something about framing that I think is really important. I didn't even remember I had said this, but had been a practice for us. I was like, well, this is, this is going to be the, this is going to be the best thing that ever happened to us. Just watch like, this is going to, we're going to be, we're going to be better people because of this, right? Okay. We're going to do this. And I didn't mean to be, I, I didn't realize how severe it was by the way, um, or how, what it was going to get because a lot of Guillain Bray, you know, there, there's a spectrum of everything. And, and sometimes people might have some, uh, might be hard to walk and might have some physical recovery, you know, yeah. physical therapy yeah. for recovery. Anyway, um, it ended up that not five days later, um, my husband was completely quadriplegic oh, on geez. a ventilator. Um, and yet I was still kind of like, okay, Google says it's two to four weeks. And then you start recovering. Like there's still recovery. And then <laughs> we had a physician come in, um, who said, basically had to break the news that this was, this was sort of that severe, like off the charts kind of case where, um, not only was, was there damage to the outside coating of nerves but also to the nerves themselves and it could be months weeks years um that he would be in his quadriplegic state um and we don't know sorry it it's just where it's a waiting game and waiting games are tough and as it is um to watch your loved one be in incredible pain completely mental mentally with it and literally this trapped thing feeling um literally trapped in your body and it was bad and then it got worse because not i I thought when you're paralyzed you're just you know like if your body if your arms and legs can't move you're paralyzed but this was so bad that even his his eyes like his eyelids the muscle um in his eyelids would no longer activate and his eyes were wide open like he he couldn't blink it was it was just bad so i think we were in that as my children as our children were home three hours away from us and it was a severe it wasn't like we were just sitting and waiting and he like placidly like this was a he, he was in screaming pain even though he couldn't speak we had to find ways for him to communicate with we found a we taped a laser to his glasses and he kind of was able to kind of move his head and point to different letters. So we tried to translate his thoughts or needs through that, but he was in incredible um, pain. And then not only that before he then no longer could even move his head and his eyes couldn't blink. um, We were able to decipher that because when you have this nervous system damage, your body, your, your brain can't, create the messages and so it starts to tell your body you have literally physical symptoms of things that aren't happening so he's now having explaining that feels like his head is in a cage with his torso balancing on top or that his i mean like just completely or like there's a wooden it feels like there's a wooden like stake going through the my foot i mean just really bizarre bizarre i'm smiling it wasn't it was not smiling like it was it was horrible. Um, it was, I, there's so much to this story, but essentially about five or six weeks after our initial, like it, it, this was the acute situation at that tertiary care center. We knew we had to get him to rehab somehow, but in South Dakota, he couldn't go to um, 
a rehab center that took people on ventilators because he was still on the ventilator. So they, we transferred him to a facility in, in Nebraska that was about seven hours from our home. And he ended up um, being ventilated for 15 weeks, quadriplegic for longer, but his recovery ended up taking, I don't know, nine, mo- nine months or so oh. before he was able to come home. But he's home and he is, you know, he's actually doing amazing. But it was um, kind of up to me to be the person to, to keep it together. And I think that's the, in terms of, you know, working and running our, our household children and trying to figure out what are we going to do? I mean, my husband owns a small company. Um, how, you know, how do you, how do you just keep going um, when someone's gone, but they're not gone and they still need your care too. So it was, it was, um, I don't know how, I'm not, I don't know if I'm really ex- explaining You're the, doing the, amazing, really. the depth of like guttural icky stuff. But what I know from that trauma was that the way I coped in the midst of it was I really removed myself from my feelings. Like I had to, I didn't intentionally do that, but I had to, I needed to go to the end of the spectrum of logic because if I went to the, if I let that emotion in, I think I would have been so um, crippled that I couldn't have done what I needed to do at the time. The emotions started to come later, but I mean, that's, that's what I'm just starting to experience again. Like I'm starting to experience feeling, which sounds weird, but I couldn't, um, I'm sure there will be a, a element of trauma that I take with me throughout my whole life. And I think, I don't mean to say that as in like a pessimistic, but I think, you know, life's about recovery. Like you're constantly recovering from those things and they probably do make us better somehow too, when we have the right perspective on them. But, um, I'm still really learning about the recovery from trauma right now. Wow. You're saying it. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of depth to everything, but you're doing amazing at describing this. You've, you've captured me in this too. And the, you said around, you know, you shut your emotions down and went to the mm-hmm. side of logic. Is mm-hmm. that a, I mean, I, I don't know. Is that, is that a natural response when you're in the midst of something like this? The best, I don't, I don't know. Here's what my observation was. I think I don't know. I don't know if this is true, but here's what I was thinking that it's about, I think you go to what you're good at in those times. Like you kind of lean toward the things that you do when you're in stress. I I mean, that's, so for me, when I'm in stress, I become kind of a control freak. I mean, I want to, I want to have it all down and I need to. So for me, it was soothing to do things like, I don't know, paperwork. (laughs) It was just like, it was kind of a bizarre Hmm. or like, or I got, um, and it wasn't a bad thing. Like this isn't all bad, but it was, it was a kind of a control thing. Like I, when I was ready to let my kids in, I, I didn't want the kids to have to come and see him that way if I didn't have to. And I kept thinking, man, it's going to be just a couple of weeks. Like they'll yeah. be able to see him after that. When he's off of the ventilator, they can come see him. It's too scary right now. And when I realized, oh no, this is, a, I mean, 
this is a super severe case. This is, there's no high, I mean, I can't protect them from this. Um, that's when I started, I started accessing all the resources at the hospital and, and querying different ways that kids deal with trauma. And I wanted to bring them in. I was going to give them, have set up a tour for them to see the hospital, maybe see like pictures of people ventilated. And, you know, I, I just had it kind of all, I wanted to script it and I wanted to control those things that I thought that was healthy and helpful to them. And, and, um, that's not unlike my personality. I mean, I'm <laughs> kind of a de- detailed person at work. I'm kind of the person who's, you know, sequencing things and, um, and so I don't know if it's true that everyone kind of goes to what they, they do in stress or maybe goes to what's soothing for them. I mean, I watched my mother-in-law who was there with us every step of the way and what soothes her is relationships. I mean, she was the person and, and she was wonderful to, I mean, it was honestly, she was kind of like a, um, she was comforting to other patients because she sat in the the different waiting rooms and visited with folks and kind of almost ministered to them. Like it was sort of her, her ground where she was able to share story, you know, empathize with others as they shared theirs. And that gave her energy. I found myself just being like, no, I I don't want to talk. I want to get stuff done. And it was, so I don't know. I don't know if that's, that's a thing, but that was my, certainly my observation. That's interesting. Did it serve you to shut down your emotions in those moments? Uh, at that time, absolutely. It's the point in which it no longer serves you, right? Like, so at, <laughs> yeah. I think it did Be- because I was doing it. I think from a really, um, <clears throat> I was trying to be really productive in in the sense of like, I guess I could have done unhealthy. I could have made unhealthy choices, but I think all my choices were made to create a healthier situation. So I think in in that case it probably did serve me when I realized it wasn't serving me as well. Cause my, my husband came back um, home basically the beginning of November, 2019. And so um, that is something that, you know, you would think would be just like the most joyous of times, mostly with a wonderful recovery. And, and it was, don't get me wrong. And we had been given sort of that forewarning that, the homecoming can be hard. I mean, you've had both had these traumas, right? Everybody's had a trauma. And my mine was different than Chris's. And and I'll just and the kids have their own. Sure. In that we literally lived a year apart with completely different experiences, even though it was Guillaume in that situation that triggered it. He um, you know, he talks about like I didn't realize how I looked. You know, he lost 60 pounds and um, had to have things suctioned out of his mouth constantly in the eyes. And I mean, it was, it was scary. Yeah. He's like, I had no idea. Like that was kind of what you, you know, in my mind, he's like, I was kind of in these dreams. Like there's an ICU d- delirium, but he had a lot of pain drugs. He's like, I was on these fabulous adventures. <laughs> like I was, you know, so wow. in his, ex- yeah. I mean, in his experience, um, it wasn't, I mean, I'm not saying it because he had fabulous time, but I am saying we just had a completely different way of experiencing it, but we also had a completely different way of coping. Um, when I realized that turning off my emotions wasn't as helpful was when he returned and 
I realized like I couldn't quite feel the joy of his homecoming, but I also couldn't feel the depth of that trauma that we had been in either. I, I was, I allowed myself sort of this middle range, cool, calm and collected at all times. But there was a, there was a, a floor and a ceiling to what I could feel. Um, that was a coping thing for me is um, we all, and we, you know, it, I, I just think that's, that's where you kind of come into this like joy and suffering. Like they're not unrelated, right? Like yeah, they can't yeah. be. And I, until I could start to allow myself even to cry, I mean, I couldn't cry. Just, I just was numb. Um, but until I started feeling safe enough and, and COVID didn't help any of that because, you know, so he returns November 19 and then COVID hits a couple months later. And in my mind, um, Chris is at risk because he was just ventilated for, I mean, this is a respiratory deal. He was ventilated for months and months. Um, had trade I mean, whatever. I, I just, I just assumed he was at risk because in my mind, he was always at risk. Um, and I felt like I needed to protect my family, but I also couldn't feel like I could be close to him because I might lose him. So there, you know, when, at what point hmm. those things still protected me, but at what point did I need them to not, protect me anymore because they were taking me away from other things that's an interesting concept there too as i'm hearing this because it's my coach calls it you know that middle ground he calls it the safe place of suffering mm, when it comes to that. <laughs> and it's uh it's true because i mean you know you've got these two different ends of the spectrum but where where that almost survival mode is the subconscious thing as he calls it is that it's the safe place of suffering you know but it's a it's a control space as he also mm -hmm. calls it too. And the, the other thing that you said that was really interesting towards the end is that you didn't feel like you could get that close to him because you also thought that you were going to lose him. Yeah. Which was also kind of a protection from what it sounds like because it's oh, shielding yourself time. from what you feel is going to happen in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Did that and, take you out of the present moment too? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, that's a good question. It's all blurred in with, COVID. So yeah, true. we hadn't, yeah. we hadn't been together. Our family hadn't been together for a year. Right. So we suddenly had this situation where we were all home. I mean, we're, we're all busy, right. But we're not home that much. Typically <laughs> everybody's at their different places and we're suddenly home after basically not having been home together for a year. And so in some ways it was very in the moment, but I think we're, you know, and Chris and I are talk about this all the time. Like, where it was confusing, where it felt like we weren't in the moment is when we kept missing each other. You know, like mm. I had built my coping mechanism to create distance just, and I didn't even really realize it, obviously, but, um, and he's kind of come to the conclusion that his coping, because this is how he is, he's a very, very naturally positive person. Like one of his top strengths and straight finders type, type of thing, positivity. He, he, he recovered the way he did because he put himself in a bubble of positivity. Like hmm. nobody's getting out, you know, like I'm, no one's taking my hope away from me. Like I will see the positive in every single thing of this. D I, I dare you to make, you know, like, so, so for him, that was like, I, and that was good. Like that he was creating this um, kind of that safety place yeah. for him to grow and to, to develop and to, um, to basically regenerate. But 
I was in a place of risk management. So where we clashed, right, was me always saying, okay, this could go wrong, this could go wrong, this could go wrong. Here's what I'm going to do in order to mitigate that. And and my husband was like, oh, <laughs> I don't want to talk. I mean, like, no, we're going to high five all day long. <laughs> so I think, um, it, yeah, I, I, it certainly, it served me the way I felt like I, I, it felt to me like I did my very best in the midst of all of that. And then it was about reshift, realizing that the situation had changed and that I could also change my behaviors or my outlook. Um, but it, it takes some time to create like that expansion of the safe place, right? Like it, I think you have to feel, you have to feel it and test it a little bit before you're willing to let it stretch. So that, that realization that the situation had changed, that wasn't an overnight thing from what I hear. No, it took time um, to figure that no. out. Yeah, no, it took time to figure that out. And it took a lot of, um, I'm really thankful that, you know, I, counseling throughout this whole thing was something that I, I pulled my kids and my family or myself into mm-hmm. throughout this deal. And I'm so thankful for that because I think what I realized about myself was it was the only time that I would allow myself to face hmm. feeling upset. Like it, it sounds so weird, but I, I just defaulted to anger. Like if I felt sad or something, that was a threat. If like feeling those sad feelings was a huge threat because it could just cripple me. So I then created like, if I got overwhelmed, it'd be like, Oh, mad. Like I'm going to, I got to keep going. It was my fuel sort of. And it wasn't like I was outwardly angry, but I could tell like, that's what I talked about at counseling quite a bit was just like, Gosh, I feel so upset about this. I'm mad about this. I'm mad, mad, mad. Um, oh, I've lost my my train of thought. I'm sorry. No, you're you're doing great. So, <laughs> am I hearing that the anger was just kind of a natural byproduct? To, but was it just angry about the situation you were going through, or was it just anger in general at anything that came up, like a, it, almost I like would, a go to emotion? Yes, it was my go to. That's exactly gotcha. how I put it in my book. Yep, it was my go to emotion, and and that's why so I'm talking about counseling. Like that's. I'm just so thankful that I was able to explore those feelings and, and understand them. Maybe like my, my counselor had really helped me to see that, you know, this, you know, this is, this is a normal thing to feel when in a trauma situation. And this is, you know, and you might want to think about, or at some point this might come up, you know, you might feel differently. Um, and I just appreciated knowing that, like, I'm not crazy. I'm not a nut. And this is okay. I mean, I'm in a realm of a typical, I don't know why that, that comforted me, but it, well, because it just felt again, I was kind of in control then again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I also got the opportunity with my children to have them go through. And I just loved that. I, I met them. Like I learned about them. I learned about how they deal in stress, I learned about how they think. I learned about um, what they love and what they're worried about. Like it was just this other bizarre byproduct that was really helpful. But then um, when we got the heads up that it might be homecoming can be tough, we started marital counseling right away. Like I was like preventative marital counseling, <laughs> which was still Another, control. <laughs> right? I was like, I got totally. See, I, I guys it all. You're like, expecting it to go like, to shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. you got There's something to that, but actually, because I love counseling so much, I just think it's a wonderful and like way to explore. Like, I love it. I love. It. I'm. I'm just. 
somebody who, you know, one of my, one of my majors is psychology. So come on, like, I obviously like this whole way that people are, I mean, people and, and how we think, but, um, I was just really thankful for that. Cause as we tried to work out, like some of the, the ways in which we were, were, I don't know, coming together, I guess. Hmm. And at times missing each other that created an opportunity, um, to talk about things that are hard. Like I really came to the real realization that I didn't want to be the caregiver anymore after, you know, and, and we're in COVID. So I'm like, I'm pulling this, you know, I'm, I'm listening for kids to, you know, fighting upstairs or whatever, but I'm also always listening for, because, you know, he doesn't, can't feel his feet or, you know, has yeah. neuropathy and ha- was still not strong. I'm listening also for an adult human to be falling on the ground. I mean, I'm constantly listening and got my, um, so we were able to walk through stuff like what is, you know, I don't want to be the, the caregiver anymore, but guess what? He didn't want to be cared for anymore either. He didn't want to be the patient. <laughs> so, you know, these things are things you never would expect before going into it. But, you know, I'm thinking of sort of that cliched thing of like, what's, what's revealed can be healed. Like hmm. that, that's sort of been my, my approach to it. Because if, if I just sit on it, it's probably not gonna, I probably won't maybe be as, be the best I can be by not dealing with it. So I don't know. I'm sure there's a million other things I can, I'm going to deal with <laughs> from it. And okay, so let's reveal them and we'll figure it out. And I, I've learned a lot through it. I guess that's, I mean, that's something. For sure. That's a, I mean, I'm blown away. It's really amazing to hear the transition in your journey that you've gone through so far. And it, this was two years ago now, right? Mm-hmm. Then he yeah. came home November. So about a year and a half ago is when he came home. His, his yeah, name's Chris, right? Chris. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. What's his, yeah. how's he doing now? Amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's just, it's so bizarre. Um, yeah, he is doing amazing. He, he's actually doing what, so he was in three different healthcare facilities in his recovery. Um, one in South Dakota, two in Nebraska. And he's this summer, or this summer is what he's calling his victory lap. So um, last, well, in May, he ran his first half marathon. <laughs> like, awesome. <laughs> um, and, and in July, he's now right now training for his um, first Olympic length um, triathlon. And he's like, it doesn't hurt as bad as it used to because I can't really feel my feet as well. And, you know, I'm like, oh, wow. That's a positive way of looking at it. Did he run um, before? He's, he's a college basketball player. Like he's a, he's a, a guy who certainly didn't like to run, but is not outside of like training and discipline kind yeah. of minded physical stuff. Um, but it, he kind of needed the structure to keep up with his basically, I mean, his therapy turned into you know, like physical therapy, occupation therapy kind of turned into like, what can you do now to keep yourself in shape or to, to build strength? Like right now it's about, um, Actually, he's just started acupuncture and he was amazed by sort of the, the uh, proprioception in his ankle. Like he could kind mm. of tell that there was something. Anyway, it's now about for him, his, his, his life, his body. How is he going to create strength or does he want to? And, and obviously he does. So he's, this training stuff has been sort of the way he, he 
remains committed to doing it because life can take us all over in, yeah. and away from working out if we want to. But this is, that's kind of been his, his, his therapy, I guess. But yeah, he's doing, he's doing amazing. Um, I think he's probably in our conversations and he wouldn't mind that I'm saying this, but I think he's also just coming to a place where he's able to put down some of that. Oh, I don't know about positivity, but he's starting to feel more. He's starting to, I mean, he's, he really kept, I mean, he's just a positive person, but I think he's starting to realize like, Oh, that really, that really wasn't, that's a knee jerk reaction. That's a defense too. I was was thinking that where your go-to emotion is anger. His sounds like it's, you know, like, well, like over happiness. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not in a, not in an odd way, but he just shuts down. He's like, Nope, it'll be good. You know, like, yeah. And he, and every, and he's very believable and he, and he does believe that, like I said, it's his top strength and that strengths finders and like kind of personality stuff. But he, um, I think what he is, he really related sort of to that joy and suffering thing, actually, because he was like, gosh, you know, there's a point where you start to feel a little bit in your safe space and, and that defense of, you know, not maybe even allowing other people to talk about sort of the, the less positive side of things doesn't cultivate relationship. I mean, you can, I can see it all the time with, with when the kids are upset and he's like, it's fine. You're good. Done. So, well, that's a way of creating distance too, right? (laughs) It does create, it unintentionally creates distance. So it's been a journey of so many different kinds, but I'm really thankful actually for where we're at right now, because there's, there is more, emotion that we're able to now like it's things are kind of hitting us i just think it's an echo Mm. you know like it's i think a lot of people can probably relate to trauma as an echo but physically like even what your body will allow yourself to to do um so that's i mean that's where you're right it wasn't that long ago something really wonderful that helped with our uh healing reconnection was um that i kept i don't know if you're familiar with caring bridge Um, caring bridge so when chris got sick i'm i'm you wouldn't know it from our conversation right now but i'm kind of a relatively private person like i (laughs) i don't need to talk about like the stuff that's going on with me i I mean i have a kind of smaller group of friends and um when he got sick i just kind of didn't want any i didn't want to be the poor us like oh I, I just kind of didn't want anybody to have to know about what we were going through. Like, but obviously when someone just disappears from their life, actually two yeah. people disappear from their life and it's new. I mean, in our small community, obviously it's big news. Um, but I was really prompted to, you know, I'm getting texts all over. How's he doing? What's going on? Um, and, and it was very overwhelming to be honest. Like it, in those situations, it's like, I don't know how he's doing. Like it, we are, if you really want me to tell you, I can tell you like really, really bad. <laughs> he might die and I yeah. don't have time to text you that. Um, but Karen Bridge is basically a, a public kind of blog, blog site. It's a nonprofit actually that allows you to tell your health stories and it kind of conveys it to larger groups of people. It's kind of like a blog. Um, I didn't want to do it. And when I realized though, it, it kind of had to be done. Like, my parents were caring for our children. We're in a small community. Everybody needs to know. I've got clients. I got my life um, and work and friends. Well, 
so I started writing um, these little updates maybe once every couple of weeks. And what they became to me was sort of this exploration of like wholeness. Like for me, it was like I was literally cataloging what was going on, but I also was um, kind of exploring with perspective, like things I was learning, like, man, you know, you never really think you're going to be in that spot. And yet I can look at these things as points of light. And someday I'm going to really look forward to talking to Chris over coffee about this and whatever, but it, and it went much deeper, but it was very healing for me. And what ended up coming out of that is when Chris came home, I had to keep writing. Like I, it, it, it became something that actually allowed a ton of people into my life that way. And it was so comforting because there were so many people that were on those sidelines paying attention. But so that's what ended up kind of um, becoming sort of like how I faced out for the, in my book, I, I, I use those caring bridge as my face out. And then I talk about kind of that background, like what's going on and how that, you know, how the counseling things, I mean, it was, it's quite the journey, but it was helpful to share that writing journey and that experience of ours, the kids and my, um, with Chris, because he didn't, he wasn't home for that year. So it was a way for us to talk through those experiences and have some more perspective on what it was like from the caregiver's perspective. Yeah. As a caregiver too, because you said it, the word you used was bizarre and it was attached, it was attached to him doing amazing. <laughs> you're right. But you're right. Everything about this is bizarre. Like you wouldn't expect any of the things that had happened or his recovery with, with what you, what you see. Um, yes. Everything about it was bizarre. I'll say this though, what I really wrote it for my own healing and I wanted to cap the book and I really wanted to capture the perspective of resilience that I feel like we put into it the best that we could for the kids because everybody has their story, right? Like everybody has their situation where it's they're called to resilience because it's not good. Um, and I wanted them to be able to examine ours that this story someday from an adult perspective, but what really made me feel it was sort of this byproduct of, you know, I wrote this book, I'll share it. If it helps feel great, if it doesn't, that's not my business, like whatever. But um, I just got this amazing um, opportunity to realize that, that my book had, had traveled around to the point where there's a family in Colorado that is going through just what we're going through right now. And that, I mean, makes, it makes me feel like, I mean, it floors me. It kind of gives me that like, like amazing um, that they're in this situation right now. And there really wasn't a, there wasn't a perspective like my book that, that I, I leaned on. And they've talked about how appreciative because they were able to walk through this with more of a positive outlook and stuff. I just, you know, that's where sharing your story. Um, again, I didn't do it for other Guillain-Barre patients and, and, and caregivers. But when you share your story really authentically and with utmost vulnerability and you realize like, man, that, that changed potentially changed some, some part of theirs. Um, I, I don't know. That's, that's really fulfilling. Yeah. When you have that moment to where you're saying that I can help a lot of others because of what I've gone through, it's just, if, if, yeah, if it, if it, if it helps 
it, but it's an offering. Like it's, yeah. I hope it helps, but if it's, it's an offering, that's all I can, that's all I can say about it. Yeah. There's a phrase you have a waiting on the other side of grief. What do you mean by that? Waiting on the other side of grief. Um, w A D I. Yeah. Yeah. Waiting through it. I think that's the thing. You can't not waiting to the other side. I'm sorry. Yeah. I think that, you know, we all go through those grief periods and we all it kind of start, it's goes to where you started in that, you know, we, you deal in the moments when that you have to deal. And then there's that period of time where you try to, you're tired and you don't want those feelings. You don't want that experience and you just try to forget it or do whatever you can. I mean, I think that's pretty normal. I, I call them kind of those thorns. Like we, we, tr- the thorns in your side, you try to find ways not to bump them because yeah. they're sitting there. And if you bump them the wrong way, it hurts again. So you modify your behavior so that you don't bump the thorn. <laughs> I think the thing is the thorn will stay there until you find a way to deal with it. And from my perspective, you know, there's, you know, there's no way but through. <laughs> and I think there's, there's that idea of like, you have to wade through it. it. You have to go through those steps. We are called to do that. And there's no human that isn't going to at some point. Um, but I think that we can maybe express ourselves more fully in, in going through it than continuing to avoid the, that pain because somehow we're supposed to learn from what we're doing. I mean, I, I don't have the explanation yeah, somehow, for it. No one yeah. does. But somehow I really believe that, you know, I, I kind of, somebody said once to me, like, um, life is for the refinement of your soul. And so the things that are kind of come to you in your life are opportunities for you to refine. Um, so I guess maybe it's easy for me to say, cause right now I'm on, I'm not going through, I'm not on, I'm on the other side of, that horrible situation with an amazing recovery. So I fully recognize that, but I do think that I'll only be better if I continue to examine and continue to live my life in the way that at least with the perspective that you got to go through. Yeah. What's the, what is the taking inventory situation about? Cause you referenced that towards mm-hmm. the beginning. I think, well, it, I think that's the, you know, you're inventorying your behaviors. You have to, and you know, sometimes you have to look, you have to look at yourself in those, the feelings of anger, the feelings of, you know, like you get to inventory your reaction. Is it defensiveness? Mm. Is it, um, because my hunch is defense, we'll use defensiveness as an example. My, my hunch is that's one of those ways to avoid a thorn, right? Like you don't want, you don't want to aggravate the thorn and, defensiveness is a way to protect yourself. I, I just think there's that opportunity then suddenly to go, okay, if I can, if I can look upon the situation and say, okay, what am I doing consistently? Um, what's my knee-jerk reaction? How do I want to, you know, I want to do this to defend myself or cope or whatever. And then you realize like, I, I don't think sometimes we don't even know the thorns there anymore. You know what I mean? Like yeah. sometimes we're just like, oh, I guess that's just how it is. And, and maybe it is, but at the same time, if it hurts, it's a call to go through again, kind of wade through to, to allow yourself to maybe readjust some of those, um, 
you know, maybe defensiveness isn't called for. Maybe it's pushing away someone else. Hmm. Um, but you're still def- you're still working on that other thorn, but you're kind of creating another one by potentially creating distance with somebody else in your current experience. So I just think that um, a lot of what we do sometimes is motivated by past stuff. And if we don't take inventory of what the past stuff is and, and the which behaviors that we tend to go to, um, it, which ones are maybe tied to those things, maybe we're still living in the present and not really allowing the next things to happen. It all sounds so easy when you say it, but it's not so easy when, you, <laughs> when you're actually doing it. So could I give you a three-step process to inventory? No, but I do think that um, it's really just about being conscientious of like, wow, that was a defensive thing that I just did. And I kind of just pulled on you or as my husband and I talk about like, my positivity is sometimes uh, maybe my shield you know like it, it's just um yeah. it's that opportunity to say like just to look at it with non-judgment i think just really look at yourself with non-judgment molly you've just you've blown me away today oh. and uh, i appreciate you sharing your story and it's i mean normally i'm really like super super energetic and over the top and this has just been emotionally connecting and i'm sure everyone listening is feeling the same way but where can we find your book at your website mollywisegram.com mm-hmm. yep go to mollywisegram.com awesome thank you i mean there's just so much we could unpack but this is a great start to tell people hey there's there's a shift that can happen in your life mm-hmm. and you, you you're like the spark i love that thanks for being the spark thank you